Well, good morning. Um, as always, it is a privilege to gather together before our Lord. Um, it's strange to think that this is going to be our last week here at CP Prep. Uh, the Lord has been so gracious to us to give us this place to meet in for a season, and we look forward to how He's going to provide for us in the future, uh, specifically at our time in Calvary First. <clears throat> Well, I was watching the TCU game Friday night. It didn't end so well for my frogs. Um, but Friday night, uh, I saw in the other team's dugout, they had plastered all over the place a motto. And their motto was, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I thought, you know what? That's a pretty good motto for us. <laughs> get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I was preparing this text, um, that motto just kept coming back and back into my mind. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Along with the line from one of my, um, shamedly, I won't tell you the name, favorite movies growing up as a kid. Uh, these men are about to go up into space and destroy this asteroid. And as they're about to take off, they're looking up and one man looks to another. And he says, man, I'm, I'm excited. I'm like 98% I'm like sighted and, and, and just 2% scared. No, 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 it's 98% scared and 2% excited. I don't know, that's what makes it so great. Well, I think um, our pastors and deacons meetings sometimes go like that. I think um, it's usually a combination of the two illustrations to get comfortable being uncomfortable and the line from my movie. Sometimes I think we leave 98% comfortable and 2% uncomfortable. And, and then other times maybe it's more like 98% uncomfortable and 2% comfortable. I don't know. That's what makes them so great. Uh, our comfort levels, uh, they ebb and they flow and they have for years. Um, but the one constant throughout it all has been Jesus. Uh, and I'm so thankful to Him and I'm so thankful that He's given us, you all, who desire more and more of Him. And it's my prayer for you, even this morning, that you would get to live in that tension, that uncomfortable comfort or that comfortable discomfort, I don't know, um, but that you don't look at what we have or don't have as lack, um, but that you are comforted and satisfied because you have Jesus and nothing else. This morning, we are going to look at a few different sets of people in our text. We're going to look at some who are unsatisfied with Jesus alone for various reasons, and then some people who are comfortable having Christ alone. And then we're going to look at one other person who is apparently snuck in under the radar of those who knew him, or at least thought they did. Before we jump in, though, I think it's only fair to give you a heads up. Uh, the last several weeks have been comforting sermons. We have seen Jesus do comforting things. We've seen Him heal a man at a pool. We've seen Him feed 5,000. We've seen Him walk on water and declare Himself the bread from heaven for the life of the world. Very comforting things. But this week, things get a little uncomfortable, especially if we're finding our comfort in anything but Jesus. So if you're ready, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 60 through 71. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, the verses are there for you in your worship order, and that's the translation I'll be reading and that we'll be working from 
this morning. So if you're willing and able, uh, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from John chapter 60, or chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who is able to hear it? But Jesus, perceiving in Himself that His disciples were grumbling concerning this, said to them, Does this offend you? What if you should see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? The Spirit is the one who makes alive. The flesh is no help at all. The saying which I have spoken to y'all is spirit and is life. But there are those from among y'all who do not trust. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who were not trusting and who it is that would give Him over. And He said, For this reason I have said to y'all that no one is able to come to the Father to come to Me unless it is given to Him from the Father. After this, many from His disciples went back away and were no longer walking with Him. Therefore He said to the twelve, Do y'all also not desire to depart? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom will we go? You hold the sayings of life eternal, and we have trusted and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose y'all, the twelve? Yet from y'all one is a devil. He was speaking of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, for this one was about to give him over, one from the twelve. The word of the Lord. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of His word, and may He grant us all the grace to trust and obey it. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are on our third week discussing what Jesus said to the crowd that followed Him into Capernaum after He had miraculously fed them with loaves and fishes. And quite honestly, we could have probably spent three months if we really wanted to dig into this discourse. Um, Today the sermon is titled, Jesus the Discomforter, because He is finishing up a dialogue with this group of people where there is no hemming, there is no hawing. He goes straight through them like knife, like a knife through warm butter. Now remember, He has just achieved every church planter's dream. He has gone on mission. He has performed great signs and He welcomed and fed over 5,000 people. And yet here He does and says things that seem so counterintuitive and so discomforting for those who had come to Him to find their comfort in the things that He seemed to be offering. People wanted Him to be their head pastor, their mouthpiece, and even their king. And yet Jesus refused them and withdrew. People came to Him because they saw that He could provide for them all their material needs. And Jesus rebuked them and demanded that they worship and be satisfied with the giver rather than His gifts. People thought He was a wonderful teacher, yet He made claims that didn't allow them to reduce Him to anything less than God in the flesh. You see, people came to Jesus for all sorts of reasons that we think normal and okay. And yet Jesus says they are normal, but they are not okay. 
We know people who come to Jesus for political reasons, for material reasons, for theological reason, reasons, and even relational reasons. But Jesus refuses to allow anyone to come to Him as a means only. Now we confess that Jesus does inform your politics. He does care for you and provide for you. He does give you good theology. And He does save you into a new family where you can have a good relationship with Him and His people. And yet He requires to be worshipped not as means only, but as source, means, and end. He demands that we come to Him for Him. And anything less than that is unacceptable. Now, as a pastor who loves you and who loves people and who wants them to come to Jesus and to trust Him, I admit that this saying is a hard one to stick to. And to be quite honest, I'm not looking forward to fleshing it out for you in the next 20 or so minutes. Let's look at verse 60, uh, and you'll see that if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, um, we are not alone. Therefore, when many of Jesus' disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who is able to hear it? Now what we have here in verse 60 is our first group of people, and they are all disciples of Jesus. These aren't the 12 disciples of Jesus. Jesus directs, um, talks to them and addresses them directly in verse 67. So these are disciples of Jesus, not the 12 disciples, and they are not pagans. And they are not religious elites. These are generic followers of Jesus. These are members in good standing, if you will. And Jesus has just said something to the effect of, I have come down from heaven, sent by my Father to save you. You must forsake all other sources of life and consume me. Depend on me. Trust in me alone to save you. Nothing and no one else will do. I must be your meat and I must be your drink. Your religion, your profession, your identification with the people of God, your very best efforts, none of those things will save you. You're under the curses of the covenant and you must devour me and devour me alone to be delivered. If you do this, you will live. If you do not do this, you will die. And when the followers heard this, they said, wow, this is hard to swallow. Remember, Jesus just the day before had given them bread and fish to swallow. And they all ate until they were satisfied. And everyone went away fat and happy. Much like our fish fries. Yet the next day, which is today in our story, Jesus tells them that what they had just swallowed the day before was a living parable of what they must be able to swallow if they are going to live forever. The same people who had just eaten His blessings with ease began to choke on the words that He says they must believe to be saved. Now we've heard the past several weeks we must not be too quick to judge these people. Lest in seeking to remove the speck from their eye, we miss the log in our own eye. 
Remember, Jesus, as far as they're concerned, is the Son of Mary. He is a human being, and He's making claims to be the only hope any of them had for eternal life. Those are extraordinary claims. And remember, they did not have four Gospels and 2,000 years of church history to help inform Jesus' words to them. Now, in some ways, we would look at that and we would say in their situation, that's a blessing because they are confronted with these bold claims of Jesus and they had to deal with them at face value while we may hear those things and be tempted to just glaze over. But those are extraordinary claims and they're confronted with these statements and they couldn't just nod their head and continue on in their daily lives. They had to choose. And I would ask you this morning, do your dead level best to remove your blinders and deal with these statements at face value. Don't assume you believe them because you've always assumed you believe them. Ask yourselves, do you believe them now? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God? Do you believe that He demands your soul, your life, and your all? Do you believe that there is no hope for you outside of Him and that you must devour Him to be saved? Do you believe that you must forsake your politics, your material comforts, your own personal theology, and even your relationship with others to truly know Jesus? And do you believe that if you aren't willing to forsake all of this for Jesus, that you have no hope for life eternal? Or does the thought of having to swallow this offend you? If so, you're not alone. But you should be careful lest you grumble and be scattered in the wilderness. Look at verse 61 with me. But Jesus, perceiving in Himself that His disciples were grumbling concerning this, said to them, Does this offend you? Here we see Jesus is no mere man. He perceives in Himself. He knows supernaturally the minds and the hearts of the people following them. And He knows that His demands have offended them. And guess what? He knows your minds, and He knows your hearts, and He knows mine. He knows that these people have begun to murmur and grumble over this supposed harsh saying, and He knows whether we do. And He makes us all uncomfortable by asking us straight up, is this offensive to you? Does the idea that you must wholly be wholly devoted to Him and nothing else cause you to stumble? Has He discomforted you? If so, then you have no idea how discomforting and uncomfortable the gospel can be. Look at verse 62. He proceeds, What if you should see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? They had been offended, and Jesus had perceived in Himself that they were grumbling, but there was something even more offensive that was coming, something even more difficult to swallow, and Jesus hints at it here. Some commentators say that this scandalous, offensive thing to come was Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. They see the language of scandal and the language of lifting up combined, and because elsewhere in the Scriptures they speak of the crucifixion in those terms, they think Jesus is alluding to the crucifixion here. But that is not the case. 
Look, Jesus says He will ascend to where He was before. So while, yes, we affirm the cross is offensive, Jesus is saying the resurrection and ascension will be even more offensive to those who don't believe. And if you stop and think, just for a moment, that's actually true. If you've had conversations with unbelievers or even nominal believers, as most of the people listening to Jesus that day were, they don't really refuse to believe that there was a Jewish prophet in the first century who was crucified for starting a political rebellion. That's not something that they really struggle with. They're not as offended at that as they are these claims. The claim that Jesus was God's only Son, our Lord. That He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. That He was born of the Virgin Mary. They're more offended at the claim that this God-man descended into death and on the third day rose again and ascended into heaven. They're offended that He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and that He will return to judge the living and the dead. It's the totality of that reality, the ascension that's so offensive and it is so scandalous. If those hearers were offended at His claims to absolute authority, then the resurrection and ascension into heaven would really discomfort them. It would really do them in. So he asks them a rhetorical question and he follows it up and he reminds them of something that he said before. Look at verse 63 through 65 with me. The Spirit is the one who makes alive. The flesh is no help at all. The saying which I have spoken to y'all is spirit and is life. But there are those from among y'all who do not trust. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who were not trusting Him and who it was that would give Him over. And He said, For this reason I have said to y'all that no one is able to come to Me unless it is given to Him from the Father. So He looks at this group of followers and, and He tells them, he's, He knows even though they followed Him up to this point, they do not believe because they followed their flesh to Him. But Jesus says the flesh is no help at all. If the Spirit doesn't blow on them, even though outwardly they may appear to be following Him, they will not truly come to Him despite how strong and smart and determined and free they think they might be. We see that the Spirit uses the words of Jesus to grant life to those whom He wills. And Jesus freely acknowledges that some of those disciples who are hearing do not believe and will not believe what He's telling them. And in verse 64, John tells us how He knows this. John says that Jesus knew from the beginning... And he reiterates what he told us in chapter 1 by using the word beginning. In the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he tells us Jesus was the Word become flesh. And He has known from the beginning, from before let there be light, from before let us make man in our image, from before anyone had done anything good or evil, Jesus knew who would trust Him, who would be given to Him for honorable use, and who would be given over to dishonorable use. We see here in John's Gospel that this is no mere man. 
And from a fleshly perspective, Jesus is making John's message and John's mission really difficult. If you remember, why did John write his gospel? He wrote his gospel so that people would believe and by believing have life in Jesus. And then John records Jesus doing great things that only Jesus can do. Last week you were reminded of some of those things that Jesus did that no one else could do. No one else was able to turn water into wine. No one else was able to heal a servant. No one was able to make a lame man walk. No one was able to feed thousands with five loaves and two fish. No one except Jesus. And in those moments, Jesus' actions were so comforting. And you can almost see how John's goal of people believing in Jesus would be coming true. And then Jesus opens His mouth. And He starts talking. And he starts making statements that make people really uncomfortable. The very people whom he had just comforted with all of those miracles. Here he seems to undo all the good things that he's done by saying, no one is able to come to me unless the Father draws him, drags him, if you will. Look at verse 66 with me and see how some followers of Jesus respond to statements like that. After this, many from his disciples went away and were no longer walking with him. Some people, perhaps even some of us, myself included, avoid difficult conversations about the gospel because we don't want to be divisive. And I want to make clear that just because the gospel is offensive, that doesn't give us permission to be offensive Okay, but the gospel is offensive and the gospel is divisive. But Jesus isn't afraid to be divisive over the essentials of the faith because he knows that faith is a gift from God. Jesus is free to evangelize because God is sovereign. Jesus is free to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because Him altering the message of the gospel doesn't make the true gospel any more or less palatable to those who hear it. Jesus shares the word of life knowing that people will refuse to taste and see that the Lord is good unless the Father changes their taste buds. He shares the words of life knowing this. He's not going to offer them some lesser food in hopes that they will one day acquire a taste for true bread and true wine. He offers Himself, His whole self, and nothing but Himself, and He knows the Lord will give life to whom He wills. That should be freeing to us. We don't have to alter our gospel message, and we don't have to offer great appetizers like programs and slick mailers and bounce houses to get people to feast on Jesus. We can lay Jesus before people, week in and week out, and trust that the Lord will do His will. After all, the flesh is no help at all. And no one can come to Jesus unless the Father grants them faith anyway. So why would we feed their flesh alone when we want them to feast on Jesus alone? 
Jesus wasn't interested in discomforting people just for the sake of discomforting them, but He was willing to make them uncomfortable because of how much He loved them. Yes, people will walk away from the Gospel. And yes, it will break our hearts. God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, and He desires that all would turn to Him. But to soften the message would actually be unloving. Look at the graciousness of Jesus telling these people the truth and demanding that they believe all of it. Admittedly, yes, these are hard truths, but it would be unloving to Him to allow them to think they were following Him without confronting them. It would be unloving if Jesus knew that they really weren't believing the Gospel to allow them to keep following Him, thinking everything was okay. It would be unloving for Him to allow them to remain false followers. It would be unloving of Him to comfort people who find their comfort in lesser gods. Jesus loves you enough to be your discomforter if you're finding comfort in anything but Him. He stood firm on the essentials of the Gospel and some of His followers were unwilling to accept what He said. They turned away and they went back to where they came from. But at least they knew where they stood. Brothers and sisters, we see this today. We see supposed followers of Jesus all around us when confronted with the essentials of the Gospel turn back and refuse to trust Him any further. And just like it would have been unloving for Jesus to offer them any alternative comfort, it is unloving for us to do that as well. Jesus must be our all or our nothing. He must be our meat and our drink. He must be our life source. And we have to tell people that that level of commitment is not for people who are really sold out or some super special Christian. That is the bare minimum required to follow Jesus. If they refuse to believe, then at least they know where they stand. And at least you've loved them enough not to lie to them. Finally, after Jesus goes all anti-church growth, He turns to the twelve who remained and asks them, What about you? Look at verse 67 through 69. Therefore He said to the twelve, Do you all also not desire to depart? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom will we go? You hold the sayings of life eternal, and we trust and we know that You are the Holy One of God. Jesus does not lower the bar for the twelve, and He doesn't praise them for their faith. Not in this story. Jesus again confronts the twelve disciples with the same uncomfortable question all the other followers were forced to answer. Will I be your meat and drink, or will you be satisfied by lesser desires? Do you also desire to turn back and devour lesser things? Or, you desire, or do you desire me? Feel Peter's response here. Feel it. Where else will we go? Peter recognizes there is nowhere else to go. No one else will do. 
as much as he may have loved being a fisherman, he can't go back to finding ultimate satisfaction in his job after meeting Jesus. As great a husband and as great a father as he may have been and is called to be, he can't go back to finding his identity in being a spouse or a parent. He recognized that Jesus had demolished all of his previous theological paradigms and he couldn't rest in what he presumed God to be like before. He had to trust God as he had revealed himself in the person of Jesus, the Holy One of God. It didn't matter if he had a good king. It didn't matter if he had material comforts, good theology, and great people all around him. Peter confesses that if he doesn't get Jesus, all those other things are meaningless. This is the response of the true Christian. I don't know how all this works. I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I will follow Jesus because He is my meat and He is my drink. That's where we have to find ourselves, brothers and sisters, desiring Christ above all else. If we come to Jesus to get anything from Him but Him, then we misunderstand the Gospel. If we are willing to be satisfied with Jesus just as long as we get our political party or just as long as we have the right job situation and maintain our creature comforts, then we aren't believing the gospel. If we prefer our theological paradigms or our church programs, meeting times and cushioned chairs, and if we can be satisfied in Jesus as long as our kids are in the right school and on the right sports team, then we aren't believing the gospel. I told you this might not be comfortable. But if you think about it, it actually should be. Take comfort in the reality that Jesus loves you enough to make you uncomfortable. He loves you enough to peel back all of those lesser things and reveal to you that you desire to stay because He has given you that desire. You love Him because He first loved you and He won't leave you or forsake you if you trust Him. Even though crowds and crowds may leave us and we so often feel so alone and so uncomfortable, we must remember that if we have trusted Jesus as He reveals Himself, we are not alone. Christ has the words of life and Christ has us. But that brings us to our third kind of disciple. The first group of disciples left Jesus because they were unsatisfied with Him and they desired lesser things. The second group, although a much smaller group, is content in all things as long as they have Jesus because they desire Jesus above all things. And yet there's this other kind of disciple. The one who slipped through the cracks, or at least thought he had. It's this disciple that may have presumed he was safe. Perhaps this disciple looked down on those who had left the group. Perhaps he even intellectually assented to the things Jesus had been teaching. Look at verses 70 through 71 as we see Jesus taking on the role of discomforter once more. Jesus answered to them, Did I not choose y'all the twelve? Yet from y'all one is a devil. He was speaking of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, 
for this one was about to give him over, one from the twelve. You'd think that Peter's response might have calmed Jesus down a bit, but it doesn't. He addresses the whole group and basically warns them about presuming on God's grace by reminding them there is still one among them who is a devil of a man. Though all of those people had fallen away and though all of the twelve remained by God's grace, there was still one there who did not believe. John has written this gospel so that you would believe, not so that you would presume. Sometimes we are so eager to grant people assurance that we grant them presumption. Assurance is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Nothing else. If we trust and obey Jesus, then Jesus should comfort us. But we should not presume on God's grace or on the strength of our profession or on our experiences with Jesus in the past. And I offer you the same tension Jesus offered the twelve. Be comfortable being uncomfortable in Christ. For in Him alone will you find life. He offers comfort to those who trust Him and devour Him as their meat and drink. But if your ultimate satisfaction and comfort is in anything but Him, then He demands you get uncomfortable and repent. As we close this morning, I want to remind you of our Scripture reading. In Deuteronomy 30, we heard Moses speak to Israel. And he told them the word of the Lord was not far off. It was not in heaven or beyond the sea, but the word was very near to them. He offered them life and good, death and evil. If they obeyed the Lord... If they loved Him and walked in His ways and kept His commands, then they would enter the promised land. But if they refused Him, and if they turned their hearts away and served other gods, then they would surely perish. Moses called them to choose life, that them and their offspring may live, loving the Lord who is their life. And then we saw Jesus... We saw Him fulfill Moses' encouragement to Israel in His person and His words. The Word made flesh did not remain far off. He was the Word made flesh who came from heaven, who came from beyond the sea. He came very near to them and offered them life and good in Himself. They were to love Him and serve Him alone, that they and their offspring may have life eternal. Jesus was to be their meat and drink, their source, means, and goal of their whole life. He he left them no other options, and He offered them no lesser comforts. John wrote this so that you may believe, and it is my prayer that you hold fast to the Jesus set before you today, that you would find comfort in Jesus, the discomforter, and in His presence you will find fullness of joy. Let's pray together. Preserve us, O God, for in You we take refuge. We say to the Lord, You are our Lord. We have no good apart from You. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all your delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood we will not pour out or take their names on our lips. You are our chosen portion and our cup. You hold our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. We bless the Lord who gives us counsel. In the night also our hearts instruct us. We have set the Lord always before us. Because He is at my right hand, we shall not be shaken. Therefore our hearts are glad and our whole being rejoices. Our flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon our soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to us the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.